yourself uh, sit at ease and listen in a way not so much to remember what's said, but to reflect and sense what is um, what rings true for yourself in your own experience. Yeah, please, John, would you take a moment? Okay, I'm not just the sort of dummy sitting up here. <laughs> Probably thought that, but never mind. <laughs> um, it's a real pleasure to be here and to see so many people. I was just saying to Jack, I just, what, what, a, what a gathering of people. Um, it's wonderful to see you all here. Um, I suppose I can just introduce myself a little bit. I mean, Jack gave a very brief introduction to who I am. I teach quite a lot abroad. Um, I teach usually once a year, sometimes twice a year in the States, usually at um, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. My background really is in Tibetan initially, as Jack said, and then Theravada. And then I became an accidental academic which was rather unfortunate, because I came back from India, had nothing to do, and ended up doing a PhD. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm never quite sure, I ended up getting a job (laughs) Um, in academia. And for my sins now, I actually, um, only part-time, thankfully, I work in the Department of Psychiatry in in Oxford um, on the mindfulness program there, where we teach mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And a third of the course in which I'm involved is actually teaching Buddhist psychology to basically psychiatrists and clinicians on a two-year period. Um, Who really need it. Yes. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) This is very true. (laughs) So that's just a little bit about who I am. So as I say, I'm not just the kind of the the, the dummy sitting up here. So I'll hand over to Jack here. Thanks, John. So we agreed I would speak for 20, 25 minutes, and then John would, and then we'd have a little bit of time for dialogue. It's Labor Day. And um, one of the things to me that's important and uh, reflecting when we have a bit of a holiday here, which is a good thing in a culture that's mostly quite busy running around and doing an awful lot, sometimes of good and sometimes not. It's just good to take a breath and stop. At least for me, there's an element in Labor Day of um, simple gratitude. Gratitude for the thousand generations of herbalists and healers, the women and men who learned medicine over these you know, millennia in all these cultures and brought to our time and Gratitude to the Chinese railway workers and the the farmers and poets and mothers and artists and watchmakers and cooks and adventurers and vintners and all the generations of humans, not to speak of the the world that gifts itself to us, um, who are really our life. Um, We wouldn't know language. We wouldn't be able to speak and live with one another as we do without the imparting of this mystery of culture and support from all the previous generations. We are them living in this time. Um, And so in the Buddhist tradition, um, there is in the teachings of how to awaken and really how to be happy. 
in, in some fundamental way, the question that the Buddha addressed with our human predicament, with this incarnation of being born on this earth, is um, the possibility of human beings creating suffering and distress for themselves or liberating themselves and living in ways that bring genuine freedom and happiness. And one of the elements of happiness in the Buddhist teachings is called right livelihood, which is a fit for Labor Day. Um, And its simplest meaning is to avoid livelihoods that cause harm and destruction to others. So to avoid trading in slaves or weapons or, or drugs or things that undermine the dignity and the well-being of others. And of course, then I have to pause with a little parenthesis and note that the U.S. is the largest supplier of weapons of any country in the world, that we sell billions and billions of dollars of killing machines of all kinds to most every other country in the world. And then we start to get paranoid and feel not so safe. You know, and there's something in this equation that doesn't seem quite right if you reflect about it. Um, But the spirit of right livelihood is first to avoid causing harm to one another, not only for their sake, but for your sake. And then the second is to take what you do, whatever it has happens to be, and do it with a spirit of attention and care that brings you awakening or happiness. And this is Thomas Merton, the Christian mystic, who was also a famous writer. He said, if you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. If you write for men and women, you may make some money and you may give someone a little joy and you may make a noise in the world for a little while. But if you write for your self-promotion, you can read what you yourself have written and after 10 minutes you'll be so disgusted you'll wish you were dead. (laughs) So there's some sense of flavor in that of what it means to do the things that we do but also to pay attention to the spirit within which we do them. And I'm a little bit sorry for fast track, even though I have to admit that I have fast track and go through that left-hand lane, you know, cruising along. But I also loved going through the toll takers in the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, My daughter always insisted we pay for the car behind us, which really made me happy. And then she would wave out the back window. and that, was, that made their day, and my day was great. But, but also sometimes the toll takers would welcome you, you know, welcome to the city of St. Francis. There they were taking, you know, a thousand tolls. But there was something about certain ones of them where they took it as a job of welcoming you to St. Francis's paradise of San Francisco. And, some, and it's so beautiful um, that you can choose the spirit in which you work in this world. You can't always choose your job, and given the terrible economic situation, you can't even choose whether you have a job in some circumstances, which is a great deal of suffering, because we need to give ourselves to the world. There's this longing to bring who we are to the community and society, and without it, um, there is a, a grief and a distress. But how we do it, whether it's the healthcare workers that I meet in the wards of certain hospitals who feel like they are, you know, Mother Teresa and St. Francis and, and, you know, the Buddha's attendant, Nanda, caring for the people, you know, uh, in, in that particular hospital, or 
this African expression that says, the tribe is lost when the sun rises and nobody sings. That there's some way in which how we attend to our life, whether it's the work or the other things that we do, is really the basis of the teachings of the Buddha, of how to live in a way that's wise and happy. And I remember Zen Master Sansanim, who was a Korean Zen master that became a friend and a teacher. He first came and uh, in the early 70s and nobody was knew who he was or was interested in Korean Zen and he needed to get a job. He was famous in Korea, so he landed in Providence. Some people invited him there. He got a little apartment um, and he worked in a laundromat near the university, near Brown University. And the students would go in and they'd see this strange bald guy in Zen robes, you know, fixing the laundry machines. And they would be putting in their laundry and he'd ask them, oh, who are you? And they'd say, who they were. he said, no, no, who are you? you know? <laughs> and pretty soon he had a following in the laundromat. And then, of course, now he has centers all around the world. So the point isn't exactly what you're doing, but what spirit you bring to it. Because this spirit, the freedom that we have in heart, um, which is the, the, the center of the teachings of the Buddha, is critical in a world where there is the eight worldly winds. And John and I talked about talking about impermanence and loving kindness tonight. There is praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, Anybody not have these? Just raise your hand. You can have your $8 back, right? You know? It's just, if you're born on this earth as a human being, um, the dance is one of duality, of joy and sorrow and gain and loss. Um, and it can change like that. So last night at 11 o'clock at night, my brother called me and he said, I'm at CPMC. My mother, who's just about 89, fell last night in her bathroom and was taken to the emergency room. And I spent most of the day over the hospital where she had what seemed like successful surgery for a broken hip. But when you fracture your hip at 89, um, it can be the beginning of real decline. Um, and the doctor and the people there were really terrific. And she seems to be in okay shape. But the the saying in the text is that karma changes like the swish of a horse's tail. You know, in one moment it's this way, in another moment it's that. And that's true in this human realm. So when we come to meditate, we begin to inhabit, in practice, in sitting meditation, that invitation of the Buddha to become mindful of the changes of our life. Because we can't stop them but we can either react to them all or we can find the spacious awareness of mindfulness that says, ah, this too, this too. We can learn to live not in a lot of anxiety and fear and past unfinished business, but to come to rest in the reality of the present, which is where we can actually see and live and respond wisely. It's said that um, the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity that there's some sense when you stop, quiet the mind, open the heart, that you can listen in a different way than the kind of small stories that we carry around. 
And you start with the breathing. W.S. Merwin, little breath, breathe me gently, row me gently, for I am a river I am learning to cross. And so you sit and you feel your breath, and the breath becomes a mirror for all the other experiences that rise and fall around it. And the quality of mindfulness, the space of awareness, is as if we are a river, a river of sensations and sounds, a river of feelings, perceptions, thoughts. Um, And it becomes possible not to be, not to drown and get caught up in the eddies and all the things of the river, but rather with mindfulness to know the movement of the river without judging, without reacting, without clinging. Because what happens when you hold on to experience, and holding on doesn't mean you can't learn from it. You do need to learn, and that's part of the wisdom you carry. But if you hold on and you don't want it to change, what you get is called rope burn, basically, because <laughs> it's changing, you know. And Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, when is asked, he asked, can you give the essential teachings of the Buddhist, Buddhist teachings in a very simple way? And he said three words, not always so. Not always so. Everything that's beginner's mind, everything renews itself. And so when we sit, we have the capacity to feel the pains, um, the joys, the longings, the love, the loneliness. This from Rumi. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it season you as few ingredients can. So if you sit and feel bored or lonely or restless, be bored, be lonely, because otherwise you're home and you're a little bored or lonely, and what do you do? You open the refrigerator, right? Or, you know, call somebody or go online or something, because you can't be with yourself. So you take your seat in the middle of the world as the Buddha that you are with the measure of tears and pain and the longing and the love and the joy and the beauty of your life, and you discover the capacity to be present for that, dance without reacting, liking this and hating that, but rather a graciousness that instead of reacting can can respond to the way things are. Bless you. Bless you. And when you find that center, it becomes a gift for others. So William Butler Yeats writes, we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us, that they may see their own images, and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. And we do that for ourselves and for one another. When we drop down from the plans and worries and lost in thought and all the things that our culture keeps us multitasking and busy, take a breath and come back and become present and mindful. We become the space that can respond to what's wise in our own life, and we also become the mirror for others to remember, to become still, to become present and attentive to themselves. Now, as you become mindful, you see more and more clearly that you can't control things. Tell your mind not to think. Good luck, right? Tell your feelings which ones you want and which ones you don't want. 
the mind has no pride, the feelings do what they want, tell your body not to sag. (laughs) Talk to my surgeon about that, right? Because what you see, if you look with the clarity of mindfulness, is that you can't control many, many things. But what you can do is set your intention, is plant your seeds, is set the compass of your heart so that when pleasure or pain, when gain or loss, when praise or blame come, you can bow and say, oh, this is blame, this is pleasure, this is pain, this is loss, this is gain. You can acknowledge as the Buddha what arises without being lost in it. And you get to start, you you get to feel a, a freedom of heart that is your own true nature. The Dhammapada, the verses of the Buddha begin, mind is the forerunner of all things. With the mind, we create the way our world will be. And so, when you realize that everything is changing, instead of holding on, it becomes possible to relax, to relax in that uncertainty because it's uncertain whether you relax or not, so you might as well relax. (laughs) Holding on ain't going to help any, right? And then you take a few breaths when things are difficult, and you set your intention. How do I want to respond to this uncertainty? It's like the email practice that I know some people do, where you, you type your response to the email, and then you take three breaths before you push the send. And in those three breaths, you reflect, what's my intention? And then you reread the email just for a moment to see you before. And then sometimes, oh, I think I'll change that a little bit. And then you push the send. You understand? Just that pause for a moment to make space with mindfulness to not be reactive and then allow yourself to set your intention. And it could be an intention in a moment in speaking with someone or you know, driving or being with a circumstance in, you know, in your work or your family. Or it can be the deep intention of the bodhisattva vow in Buddhism or really what, what guides your life in whatever way you direct it. Thomas Merton again, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no results at all, he said to an activist if not perhaps sometimes bring about its opposite. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. And so what you can do in this changing world is begin to deliberately or consciously set the intention and spirit with which you will meet the changes that inevitably come to you. And it can be in the smallest ways, just the tiniest ways. A note that was left, um, if one person smiles at me on the way to the bridge, I won't jump. So you can hear the pain in that and the desperation, and at the same time, the longing for a little bit of connection, just that moment's care, from one being to another, can make all the difference. And in Buddhist traditions, there are these 
bodhisattva vows, sentient beings are numberless, I offer my practice, my life for the benefit of all. But Aldous Huxley, when he was on his deathbed and was asked what he'd learned, all the amazing things of his life, he said, you know, all the amazing things I've, I've learned, it seems to come down to just one simple thing, just to be kind to yourself and all you meet. You know, this amazing life he lived as an intellectual and a writer and an artist and a world traveler and a spiritual explorer. That simple. So when you take a moment after you become mindful and present to pay attention, then it becomes possible to sense what is your intention. What are the seeds that you will plant in this moment that will bear fruit as you go forward? And it's so mysterious as we quiet down. About five years ago, my youngest brother's wife was dying of uh, breast cancer. Lived in San Francisco, and I'd been sitting with her quite a bit, and very dear to me, wonderful woman. Um, And uh, I knew she was getting close, and I'd come home to sleep here in Woodacre, and then I was in, on my and got up and I was in a hurry to go and see her. Um, and my wife said, "Well, could you stop on the way at the nursery and just pick up these plants that I ordered and stick them in the back of the car?" I said, "I will, but I really have to get there." So I got in the car and I rushed down, got down over the hill, stopped at the nursery, was rushing to put the plants in the back of the car, and all of a sudden, I just slowed down and stopped and I said, "I don't have to hurry anymore." And then put the plants in the car, paid, picked up my cell phone, called my brother. And I said, hi, I'm on my way. And he said, well, Asta died five minutes ago. And I knew it. And you know it. I mean, we've all had these experiences in this mystery of life, of consciousness, because we actually are connected. And when we stop and begin to pay attention, we also then learn about interdependence, which is central to the Buddha's teaching, but it's basically central to any kind of awakening. Um, We interbreathe with the rainforest. The blood and the fluid in our body comes from the clouds and the oceans and the streams. We're not separate from the physical world, nor, as I just said, from the consciousness and the field of one another. If you study interpersonal neurobiology, you discover that we're resonating as nervous systems with one another in all sorts of ways. And so the world doesn't need more oil and more food for hungry people. It needs less greed and less hatred and less ignorance. It doesn't need more technology and more computers and more bioscience and more internet. Those alone won't do it. Those can be used in any way and they won't stop continuing warfare. They won't stop tribalism. They won't stop racism and the suffering it causes. They won't stop environmental destruction. The outer developments at this time, which are so powerful, are calling for a transformation of human consciousness. And we all know this. They have to be wedded to a deep understanding that we're in it together of this interdependence. And so mindfulness both leads to an inner freedom, to the ability to to direct our lives in a wise way, and it also leads then to a natural sense of connection or compassion. Wisdom and mindfulness 
are married to, are woven together with loving kindness and compassion. You can't actually be mindful when you sit in meditation if you're not kind. Otherwise, you spend the time judging. Get back to your breath. You're no good. You know, you're not a good meditator. Stop that. Stop thinking. Don't do that. I hate that thought. I, don't, I hate that person, too. I that. And I shouldn't be hating. I should stop judging. You know, I hate all those judgments. But what's that, right? It's more judging. All you can do is bow and say, oh, the judging mind. Thank you for your opinion. And you're mindful and you say, this is the judging mind. This is the doubting mind. This is the broken heart. This is the heart that's joyful. And to see all these different experiences that make up your, ma- your, your humanity with both awareness and kindness or compassion. Because the minute you judge, you're no longer actually present and mindful. You're already back in, kind of back on the battlefield, struggling against yourself. And it can be in big ways. I was on the radio, Michael Krasny's show a few days ago, because I have this new book, A Lamp in the Darkness, Illuminating the Path Through Difficult Times, which is mostly guided meditations to use for healing or transformation or through difficulty. And it says that you can apply or turn toward the difficulties. You can lean into the wind. You can hold your ground and find your place as the Buddha that you are and bow to your difficulties and make them workable rather than run away from them. And in those very difficulties is the seed of real compassion and real patience and real love. So I got a phone call from these parents whose child had just died, which is for almost all of us unthinkable, especially if you're a parent, Um, and talked about their communion with all those other parents who've lost children. both how, how agonizing it is, but also how as important it is <clears throat> to feel that it's not just them, but that this is also part of what happens to us as humans at times, and that kind of connection. And the fact that when the heart is so rent and torn, um, and the loss so great as the loss of a child, it doesn't go away, but it becomes somehow part of your path as all your difficulties do. And then what matters over time as you grieve and carry it is can you carry it with some dignity? Can it bring you the compassion for others who've lost children, for others whose children are in battle because they've joined the military or, or, or in rehab? Or, and all of a sudden you realize that it's not you and your child, but it's us and our children. In Elie Wiesel, the Nobel laureate, he writes, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or another, you're degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can also elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. And so we sit in the midst of our common humanity with joy and sorrow and praise and blame and our vulnerability and tenderness in one way and our magnificent courage and dignity that's also true in another. 
and take our seat in the middle. And from this grows real compassion and freedom. And I end with a poem somebody gave me, Mary Oliver's new poetry book. She writes, it's called Winter and the Nuthatch. And in our center in Massachusetts, where John goes to teach in one part of that, um, people who are on the... um, fall and winter retreats will sometimes go out behind the building where the <clears throat> woods are, put bird seed in their hands and just stand, do standing meditation for a long time. And sooner or later, the birds will come down and take the seeds from their hands. So this is Mary Oliver's description of that, winter in the nuthatch. Once or twice, and maybe again, who knows, the timid nuthatch will come to me if I stand still with something good to eat in my hand. The first time he did it, he landed smack on his belly as though his legs wouldn't cooperate. The next time, he was bolder, and then he became absolutely wild about walnuts. But there was a morning I came late, and guess what? The nuthatch was flying into a stranger's hand. To speak plainly, I felt betrayed. I wanted to say, Mr., that nuthatch and I have a relationship. It took hours standing, of standing in the snow before he would drop from the tree and trust my fingers. But I didn't say anything. Nobody owns the sky or the trees. Nobody owns the hearts of birds. These are really important lines. Nobody owns the sky or trees. Nobody owns the hearts of birds. No one can own anyone's heart. Still, being human and partial, therefore, to my own successes, though not resentful of others fashioning theirs, I'll come tomorrow, I believe, quite early. (laughs) And you hear this kind of beauty that real attention brings to what Oscar Wilde called the tainted glory of our humanity, both the measure of suffering that we carry and the intimate personal longings, and yet the universal, nobody owns this. And this freedom comes to us through her poem and through our practice, and really directly through the teachings of the Buddha. Mr. Peacock. (laughs) Well, the question I think that the Buddha raises, I think is a very important question, one that we all have to contemplate in our own lives for ourselves. And that question is, how do you want to live your life? How do you want to continue in your day-to-day existence? Do you want your day-to-day existence to be full of what I call the commonplace? And the commonplace is the greed, the aversion, and the confusion of ordinary life. This is the commonplace, this is what we can so easily fall into. And I think the Buddha gives us a very elevated sense of what it can be to be human and to live in this world. In a very famous sutta, I was quoting this today actually, uh, when I was across in San Francisco. In a very famous sutra, which is the Avatamsaka Sutra, um, there's a description of the Buddha, which is... It's not a very very favourite text of mine even, but there's this wonderful description of him walking through the world with bliss-bestowing hands. 
which I think is a very moving picture. But it's a picture not just for a Buddha. It's a picture for how we could be in this world. And we have to seek the origins of the greed, aversion and delusion that we so easily live, that we so easily, to use a Christian term, we can fall into. We fall because it's known. We fall because, in many ways, it's the easiest thing to do, to fall into the known rather than to step out into the unknown, into the possibility of being different in this world. So how do we want to live our lives? What's the alternative? And what's the root of the reason why we behave often as we do, not entirely, we don't have to paint a bleak picture of the way that we are in this world because there are the joys, there's the beauty, the elevation of the heart, but there is also this commonplaceness, this falling back into these day-to-day pettinesses. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who's not a very popular philosopher sometimes, um, he has this notion of the Übermensch, which was much, much misunderstood because the Übermensch, the person who was the overperson, the overman, the overwoman, was a person who had overcome everything that was petty within themselves. This is the real notion of what became, um, unfortunately, translated very badly as the superman or the superwoman. But it was the person who had overcome everything that was petty within themselves. And when we seek to look at the behaviours, the pettinesses, the commonplace, the everyday, we often see behind it the woundedness of our human condition. That human condition is a wounded condition. It's out of that wound that we often operate. When we experience the frustration, the maliciousness of others, it's often not us that it's directed to, but it's just that we are the object of the woundedness. That is all. And we take it personally, and then we wound back out of our woundedness. I think this is, unfortunately, the the circular behaviour that we get trapped into, and we feel entrapped by it. This is why we have this word in Buddhist circles, which... It's a wonderful word. It's uh, actually a verb in the original languages. It's called sangsara. Some of you might have heard it, but it's really, usually in traditions, refers to the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. The literal meaning of this term is to go round in circles. And I think this is often how our lives are experienced, going round in circles. I don't know how many of you feel that, but sometimes you're making the same mistakes today that you made many, many years ago or similar mistakes in your life. But this is what we often experience as our basic feeling tone of life, claustrophobia, contraction, and the feeling of going round in circles. And at the heart of some of this is something Jack has been talking about, which is the impermanence that we encounter the loss, almost the feeling of being swept along in a tide of change which we have very little ability to be able to control. However, I came across a little quote and I wished wished I'd coined it. It was even anonymous, but I wished I'd coined it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so I could have claimed it for my own, but I didn't. And this little quote went something like this. Relax. Absolutely nothing is under control. <laughs> I think that says it all. Yeah. <laughs> to relax into our lack of control. We have this spurious sense that we have control. I think we in the Western world are, in particular um, are control freaks. We want to have control over whole areas of our life. Yet we live with uncertainty. We live constantly in the kind of cases that Jack mentioned in his personal experience of areas where we have actually lost our control over things. And all we can do is be with that loss, be with that sense of bereavement, be with that sense of grief which is given to us. Yet we act often out of this sense that we can control and that things are certain. I myself um, lived in India for a long time. Um, One of the things I learnt over my period of living in India for quite a number of years was actually you do have to relax because nothing is certain (laughs) in living in India. And this was brought forcibly home to me once when I was in Delhi. And I was staying in Delhi in a meditation retreat centre and somebody flew in from Switzerland and never been to India before. This was quite a shock to the system, as you can possibly imagine. Somebody who came from the clockwork of Geneva to the chaos of Delhi... Um, by day three, they were having nervous breakdown. <laughs> so we decided in our wisdom that we'd pack them off to Dharamasala, which is the place where the Dalai Lama lived, and told him there was all these cool Tibetans hanging out there, and it wasn't like Delhi at all. It was completely different. So we booked him an overnight sleeper on the train to Patankot, which is the nearest you can get by train, and then you have to take a bus up to Dharamasala. And we took him down to the station. I don't know if any of you have been to India, but it's quite a, quite a fiasco trying to find your sleeping berth on the train. And so we found his sleeping berth, put him onto the train. The few of us who had accompanied him down stood there waving as the train chuffed off and left the carriage behind. <laughs> The next day, he flew back to Switzerland. (laughs) Now, although it's a humorous story, I mean, if there is a moral to it, it is you can't expect things to happen the way that you want them to happen. Um, This, I think, is brought more forcibly home often in in developing countries than it is in our seemingly cosy, safe Western world. But as events around the world, and you know, no matter how safe and cosy we might feel, somehow reality has a, uh, a tendency to obtrude into our lives, to break, to rupture into our lives. And that can be through tragedy, you know, through illness, through sickness, through all of the things that none of us, absolutely none of us, will escape. The Austrian... or German language poet, I should say, or was Austrian by birth, Rilke actually had a wonderful phrase for this in one of his Duino elegies. He says, we live in this world forever taking leave. Mm. 
He said, we are like a bowl and we are just the steam evaporating off the hot liquid. This is what we did. And in the sonnets to Orpheus, he backs this up by saying, we should be ahead of all of our partings. In other words, almost to always have thought about the sense of loss. And this doesn't require a morbid brooding on life or any kind of tragic stance towards life, but it's actually an embracing of life in all of its difficulty. In all of its difficulty. The Buddha, in his final words in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, I'll give you the elegant version first and I'll give you my modern gloss on it. Um, the elegant version is absolutely everything, all things are compounded, are impermanent, now strive on diligently. Really, I think what he's saying in contemporary English would be absolutely everything is impermanent, now get on with it. <laughs> now get on with life, now get on with the business of living life. So this means embracing it. In my living with Tibetans, I used to hear them frequently quoting something which to many Westerners initially seemed um, quite morbid in many ways, which was they used to go around saying to each other, there's one thing that's absolutely certain, death. <laughs> one thing that's absolutely uncertain, when. <laughs> and then they would fall around laughing. <laughs> Because it's not something to be morbidly dwelt on, but something to be embraced and to actually enhance our life. And all too often, this this fear of death, the fear of impermanence, that drives us into trying to salve almost the woundedness of that feeling, if we allow it to be a wound, by running towards the things of the world, embracing those, embracing, for example the material stuff of the world in a way that can somehow placate and soothe and pour oil on the troubled waters of the soul. Now, that doesn't have to be the case. Uh, The aversion that we often feel is the aversion and frustration of things not going our way, not getting our way. In many ways, I think sometimes we haven't progressed much upon children. You know, when children don't get what they want, what do they do? They usually stamp their feet and scream. You know, this is what they do. We've just developed more sophisticated ways of doing that. That is all we've done. So, to embrace this tragic, seemingly impermanent life that we have, this is what the Buddha was really encouraging us to do to embrace it in its fullness, to embrace it in its meaningfulness. Often I've heard it said that, for example, death and impermanence are the things that make life meaningless. Think how boring it would be to have immortality. And I say that seriously. Shall I do this today? No, I think I'll put it off for a couple of hundreds of years. Because it's actually death that gives us some degree of urgency, impermanence that gives us some degree of urgency about living our lives, making the choices that we do, making the 
kind of changes in our life that is necessary with the awareness that we can't do everything. The awareness of our limitations, the awareness of our fallibility. This is something we also bring mindfulness to. Mindfulness is not just calming the mind. It's also bringing it to the awareness of what is going on. And this is very much, the, if you like, the aspect of the Buddha's awakening, a major aspect of his awakening. He wakes up, according to the tradition, and this is far better a word than enlightenment or being enlightened, he wakes up to the truth, the actuality of impermanence and offer the tragedy, the pain, the woundedness, the irritation, all of the many synonyms that we can use that go to speak this Pali word, which is virtually untranslatable, called dukkha. This is a word which is usually translated as suffering, but means far, far more than that. It means it's the kind of background tone to much of our existence. The background tone... One of the teachers I had when I was in the monasteries in India was the Dalai Lama's senior tutor, Ling Rinpoche. And he said that this thing that we call dukkha, or suffering, wasn't like being stabbed. It wasn't sharp and extremely painful for most of us. He said for most of us it was like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. Not very painful to start with, becomes progressively more and more painful when you engage in it. So, we often cause ourselves pain and exacerbate the pain by attempting to run away from that which is unavoidable. We attempt to run away from the old age, the sickness and the death, which are inevitable. We try to cover them up. Cover them up with the things of the world, cover them up with even the acquisition of fame, the the worldly wins uh, that Jack talked about, the praise that we might get for achievements that we have. However, this is something that can so easily be taken away from us. All of these things that we so desperately cling to can be taken away from us. So it leads to a deep sense of unease in our life. And really I think one way of translating the sense of dukkha is a sense of unease. The deep sense of dis-ease that we have with our lives. And when we ask ourselves the question, how do we want to live our lives, do we want to live it with this permanent sense of dis-ease? Or, to use the title out of one Tibetan author's works, Do we want to live with comfort and ease in this world? And that doesn't mean with material luxury. The Buddha also speaks about being content with little. Not too little, but not too much as well. To be able to move through this world in a balanced and poised fashion. Not being swayed, not being pushed and pulled in a reactive manner by the things that happen to us. Reactivity is so different from the responsiveness that comes through paying attention, paying attention to our experience, 
actually paying attention to the way that the mind reacts. As I was saying to a group over the weekend, have, we, have you noticed how your mind has a mind of its own? <laughs> it goes off and does other things. I talked about it going off and playing while you're trying to be with the breath. <laughs> yeah. This is what it does. We think we're under control, yet we can't control the most basic element, which is our own minds. So, we gain control by paying attention, by looking at the most impermanent phenomena we're ever likely to encounter, thought. Yet, all of the thoughts that we encounter, most of which we take terribly seriously and terribly personally. Thoughts are us. (laughs) This is how we treat them. We think they are us. I feel that uh, when we examine thoughts, or actually thought, to be honest, really should come with a little label. It says, just passing through. (laughs) This is what we, our relationship with thought should be governed by. Now, when we come to look at this most impermanent of phenomena, the fleetingness, the evanescence of our cognitive processes, our thought processes, uh, the tendency of them to go into obsessional thinking, to go into hyperdrive and to spread out in all the ways that they do, there is a big difference between being caught up in that process and observing that process. doesn't sound a lot, but we make an enormous stride when we, in a sense, take that one step back in mindfulness and the attention that we bring, although mindfulness can't be readily identified just with attention, but initially the attention that we bring to looking at this process, to looking at this fleeting stream of thought that goes through our minds that normally we attach ourselves to, get hooked into, and just as we get hooked into what I call the train of obsessional thinking, we don't know where it's going to end up. This is the kind of characteristic of this way of thinking. We just do not know where it is going to end. So when we take the step back, we unhook. We begin to get a grasp on what is going on to see the patterns arising in our minds. We get the possibility to be able to respond instead of just simply reacting to what is there. I think if we we place the Buddha in the modern world, he would look around at the modern world and what people are doing and say everybody has got obsessive-compulsive disorder. I think this is what would be the case, that we are all caught into, or pretty well all of us caught into, doing things in an obsessional, compulsive manner because we get caught up in the patterns of this stream of thought which is actually just impermanent. So we make a huge and radical step in many ways by sitting still, watching and seeing what is happening paying attention to our lives. And in paying attention to our lives, and just in the, even in the simple fashion, although we also have to pay attention to it in the ethical ways that we behave, which is another whole issue, but just paying attention to how and what our minds are doing, 
we begin to, in some senses, give ourselves the opportunity to live our lives in different ways without being caught up with what I call the almost the genealogical tree that stems from the psychology of greed, aversion and delusion. The greed, aversion and actually confusion that we live. Now I use the word deliberately, confusion here, because all too often delusion, ignorance are so pejorative. Yeah. It's, this is not wagging a moralistic finger and saying to people, you are deluded, you are ignorant and it's your fault. This is much more the case of we are confused. Again, just to give an example I was giving over the weekend, this is the state of confusion. We are dropped into a strange landscape, not knowing where we land. We have no map to show us around the topography of the landscape in which we are dropped. We ask the local people... um, the whereabouts, but they can only tell us what is in their particular valley, not which is in the next valley. And when we get to the next valley, they can only tell us what's in their valley and not in the previous valley. Well, being dropped into this strange landscape is life. It's birth. The guides who can only tell us their own landscape, their own particular valley are generally our parents and our guides. This is what it is. So when we find ourselves in the state of confusion, it's natural. It's not something that we can, again, beat ourselves up about. But it's something which is just fundamentally there that we have to deal with. And so we see the confusion, and we see the way that confusion manifests in getting caught up with the psychology of greed and aversion, infatuation and aversion, being infatuated by the goodies of the world, by ways of actually trying to cover over often the pain of impermanence, the pain of this slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as Hamlet, in the words of Shakespeare, puts. So, here we are in this world... And we have a choice, the choice to look at what is going on, to see how we can view the patterns of the mind that we see and the decision whether to get caught up further in them or to simply take that step back. And so the question becomes, again, right at the very end, how do you want to live your life? So let me ask you a question, John. Really appreciate how you're articulating the teachings. Um, there you were with these Tibetans who were your teachers, Ling Rinpoche, this amazing, the tutor, or the teacher of the Dalai Lama, and some of the other lamas that you were with. They're happy. At least my experience in spending time in Dharamsala and other places in Tibetan community, people who've lost an enormous amount um, the destruction in many ways of their parts of their culture and temples and so forth. And yet, there's a kind of joy and happiness 
um, in this world. How do you understand that? Did you experience that? And how do you understand that? Well, I mean, let me just reflect on that for a second, because I think uh, that is actually the motivating force behind my getting deeply involved in Buddhist practice. Uh-huh. Um, I, ca- I came got to... Got you hooked. Okay. I got, they got me hooked. I arrived in Dharamsala at the age of 17 um, with Tibetans, and um, I came from the UK um, in a culture that seemed to me to be fundamentally quite depressed. Yes, because it rains all the time, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and you lost I, I would say that's an American <laughs> vision of England. <laughs> it doesn't rain all the time, honestly. <laughs> anyway. But a culture that was quite depressed despite its material affluence. And I think exactly as you're expressing it, I saw people who actually at that time were still arriving out of Tibet who had lost everything. They'd lost their culture, they'd lost, um, they'd lost their homes, they'd even lost their families. They had to leave children behind sometimes in Tibet itself. And yet they still had this glow of happiness, they still had this glow of contentment around them. They would, and I'd never experienced it before, people who went around cracking jokes all the time. Yeah, it was really quite extraordinary. And I do think that as I lived with Tibetans, and I originally arrived there just expecting to spend three months, and I spent a year and a half there um, living with Tibetans because of this kind of wanting to find out what they had got, you know, because I hadn't got it. Um, and it became quite obvious that to me that it was through a thousand years of enculturation of Buddhist thought that a lot of this had become so deeply ingrained into the, into the Tibetan psyche um, that it was literally embodied. Yeah. And I think this is one of the big tasks I always feel for us as Westerners is not just to know the teachings but to embody them. You know, to embody the humour, actually, of our condition because actually a lot of the jokes that Tibetans used to make were actually laughing at themselves about their own neuroses. Yeah. And uh, this is something I think we really need to learn is to how to embody the teaching, not just to be able to say I subscribe to it or that I know it or I have intellectually understood it or any of this sort. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've had my own experiences of that kind. And the Dalai Lama, who in many ways is the exemplar of not only of compassion but of somehow that that joyful spirit, as his teachers were, was doing a, um, the Kala Chakra initiation in Madison Square Garden, which is um, the Kala Chakra teachings are some of the highest of the Tibetan teachings on the um, awakening of the world and possibility. And they set up a big throne for him in the middle, um, covered with brocade silk. And um, when he came in, this great ceremony, people were prepared and the, 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 the Tibetan horns and cymbals clanged and then the monks did that wonderful multi-vocal chanting where you know you hear all these notes and it all was very special. And he climbed up the steps to his throne and at the top they had to make it comfortable for him, they put a couple of mattresses and then a, uh, um, you know, some brocade and a carpet on top of it and he sat down and it bounced. 
and you could see him smile, and then he bounced again, and he smiled bigger. And I mean, here's like the highest Tibetan teachings, and thousands of people gathered, and then he just started bouncing for a while, like a kid on a bed, before giving the highest, or maybe that was the highest teachings, I'm not sure, you know. Um, Actually, I was, sh- I was sharing with the group today, I was teaching, that um, uh, when the Dalai Lama came to Oxford, we invited him to Oxford a couple of years back, and it was so funny because, again, they'd set up a seat for him and for his translator. It was a beautiful thing. It was actually in one of the medieval colleges in Oxford. It was an absolutely beautiful setting. And he marched in, and he completely ignored the seats, and he spotted some benches right at the end that were piled up, and he started pulling them out. <laughs> he pulled them out, and he kind of went like this to all of these Oxford professors that were there. And they came and sat down by him. And then he grabbed their hands. Yeah. And these Oxford professors were looking quite shocked. This is the sort of thing that does not happen to Oxford professors, having their hands held. <laughs> How did they do? <laughs> they tried as best they could. <laughs> Yeah, mostly I see people, when the Dalai Lama's held their hand, even in spite of being an Oxford professor, kind of drunk and happy at the end of it. Like, oh, wow, I got to hold the Dalai Lama's hand. It's really kind of... So there is there's this tension that, um, that, you, you know, that you speak of and carry um, uh, when you talked about how the Tibetans would joke about there's one thing that's certain, death and you know, the only thing that's uncertain, when, and then they would laugh or giggle about it. There's some tension that happens by turning toward the very difficulties or the impermanence or the insecurity um, or the loss and saying, this is our human lot. Um, What are you going to make of it, as you said? How are we going to live? And there's a way in which meditation can seem very much like a self-improvement game or, you know, a grim duty, all right, uh, there's a lot of confusion and delusion and materialism and I've been caught in it and my, you know, colleagues and friends and community and how do I get out of it and, and so forth. And, and in that, there's a way to lose, actually, that spirit um, of joy or freedom that is always here for us. And mm-hmm. how do you, you know, how do you understand teaching in a way that invites people to have the experience that you had with the Tibetans? I think it's begin, beginning to, I mean, one of the things I feel that's so important actually just in doing meditation is to actually have a good sense of humour about it. Um, to look, I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience, but it's certainly been part of my experience, is to watch the same stuff going round and round and round. I think of the mind as the perfect organic, organic recycling machine. You know, it just recycles the same rubbish again and again and again. Yeah. And the ability to look at that recycled rubbish coming back at you um, demands not po-face seriousness, but I think a good sense of humour about it. And I think that what I'm really saying is it's actually quite joyful because in the humour also opens up other facets of joy within our lives. And sometimes I think just, and, and, and I'm probably as guilty of this as many teachers within the Buddhist tradition, we often talk about the pain, as I've done tonight, I've often talk, we often talk about death, impermanence, all of these sorts of things, but one of the really important dimensions is the joyful aspect, the wonder of being, actually, 
um, that often gets <coughs> missed out. Again, something from my Tibetan tradition um, that I had that still impresses me, although I've moved a long way from that tradition, was that uh, every tantric text that I encountered, and as you probably know, Tibetan Buddhism is full of what's called tantra. It's the path of the Vajrayana. And every tantric text begins with a little mantra. And the little mantra is M-R-Ho. And it has a really profound technical translation. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what it means. It's an exclamation of wonder. And it's... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to finish off and say it's an exclamation of wonder in the face of being, of just being here in this universe, in this world. Something that we often forget when we get caught up in our own obsessional thinking. Sorry, Jack. I think that's a great place to end for the evening. Um, First, I want to thank you all again for coming and for your kind attention and support. And it's great to meet you. Really a pleasure and to listen and and hear your words and reflections. A great pleasure. Um, And uh, I'd like us to end with a very simple chant and then we'll go out into the beginning of the autumn, end of summer evening. Um, And the chant is this. Um, In the Buddhist tradition there is a a text called the um, Verses on Complete um, and perfect wisdom in 80,000 verses that summed up in 8,000 verses and then in 800 verses and fortunately for your sake this evening also summed up in one syllable um, which saves a great deal of study and reading on your part um, and the reason that this syllable is considered the summary of the text of perfect wisdom is that in Sanskrit it's considered to be both the first and the last sound in life, but most importantly, the seed syllable ah, it's the sound of letting go or opening. So I'd like us to sing or chant the sound ah for a bit, and you can feel what, having listened and reflected and done your own meditation, what wants to open, what wants to be let go of, what would allow that wisdom, that relaxation into the way things are with the joys and sorrows of your humanity, what would allow the joy of um, dignity and graciousness to open in you. And we'll sing that and then we'll go out into the evening. So. Ah, add harmony, ah, wisdom, carrying the joyful and kind heart be with you as you leave and for the days and time that follows and thank you again. Thank you you, John. Pleasure.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.